Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, I want to talk about the concept of satire. And the best paragraph I read is just the definition of what is satire. And so here it is. Satire is the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices, particularly in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. And Don, I used that that definition today because I wanted to also read a short essay that was in the New Yorker a couple of weeks ago. It's in one of the better sections, the shouts and murmurs section, where they just sort of had this kind of humorous piece. And here was somebody's satire. Ah, would you look at that? Another beautiful morning with the sun's first rays casting a warm glow on my bed sheets. As I wake from restful slumber, I peer out my window, and yes, it's looking like another perfect day. Time to ruin it by immediately opening my phone and reading about everything that's happening and everything that everyone is saying. What's that smell? It's coffee, brewed fresh. It's here to bring me back to ground me. I sip slowly, appreciating the still moment in life. Then I open Twitter, and my day is over. But it's the weekend. And I'm lucky to have a couple days off from work. Chipper Bird calls me, pulled me outside, and onto a walk with friends. We chat and reminisce, our laughter getting lost in the sounds of the city. We sit down on a bench and immediately take out our phones. We just got push notifications about something very bad that's been happening for a long time and probably will never end. I clear my head going for a jog while listening to a playlist of my favorite music. Then the playlist runs out, and the next track is a podcast about all the ways people have been murdered while jogging. I go home, take a shower, and change my clothes. I feel fresh, awake, and full of potential. I decide to put my phone on do not disturb mode, but while I'm trying to find that setting, I accidentally spend two hours Googling diseases I think I might have. (laughs) In the evening, I visit with my parents for the first time in a while. I treasure still having them in my life. We make dinner together and laugh, and then my mom shows me something horrifying that her friend just shared on Facebook, and that's basically the rest of our night. It's late now, and I can feel my eyelids getting heavy with the tempting weight of coming sleep. As I lay under my blankets, I resist letting my eyes shudder and sneak just one more glance at my screen. A fatal mistake. I stay awake the entire night reading about the climate. And ah, would you look at that? Another beautiful morning. And Don, I just think this is funny. I think it pokes a lot of fun at us as humans in our modern state of society. What did you think of this essay? I thought it was very funny. I also thought it was like um, quickly showing our worst instincts come to our phones and how our phones make our worst instincts totally possible and easily reached. And that is just much to our detriment. It's amazing just sort of how succinct and, you know, playful the essay is, but just how every one of those paragraphs is something that you can just nod your head at and say, yep, I've done that, or I have friends that do that, or you read it out loud and people just nod their heads and they laugh. And it's one of those like guilty laughs because they're like, yeah, that summarizes me. And I just think it it takes a real talent by an author like this to be able to write, you know, something just so fun. Oh, yeah. And I love the structure of it in that it has each little episode. It's not just one train wreck. It's like, okay, things are good. Oh, I looked at my phone. Oh, things are good. I looked at my phone. And it's just, it takes you down that track of whatever draws your eye. And what draws your eye is usually something awful or 
sad that gets clicks, which we've talked about before is the reality. Well, again, you go back to that definition of what satire is, and it's basically criticizes people's stupidity or vices. I can't think of something that basically uh, can make more fun of our stupidity and our vice. And it's kind of amazing just how big a vice now our phones are in our life. Everybody seems to kind of recognize that it's a major part of everybody's day now. You know, it's kind of amazing to think, but the iPhone itself is only about 13 years old at this point. It's only been roughly a decade that we've had smartphones in our lives. And it's amazing to think how much of an impact they have had on us and how they've shaped our behavior, how they've changed our society. And it was like a slow creep. And now just here they are. It is true. And it is very recent. I mean, I had kids before I had an iPhone. And then once I got an iPhone, that changed the way that I interact with the world and the way I do work and the way I do a lot of things. But imagine if you're only 20 years old and you've had iPhones have been around in your parents' hands and then ultimately your hands instead of having the childhood we had, which was very, very different. I always say this to some of my middle school students, and I always just say, I'm really glad I don't have to grow up in the era that you're growing up in. (laughs) And they always look at me weird. And I'm like, no, seriously, I just, I don't know how I could handle being a teenager with a phone. Because I remember being 12, 13, 14 years old and being in school and wanting to know the gossip or one kid had a secret and you were just begging them to let you know the secret. And you spent a lot of time just trying to get that, right? There was some social capital to that. There was some currency that you kind of had or power if you could get that information. But then like the school day would just kind of end and you went home and maybe you talked to a friend on the phone or something like that. Or maybe you got together with that friend and you maybe gossiped a little bit, but it just seemed like the day ended. And now whenever I talk to my students, they just talk about like group chats that never end, group chats they don't even want to be on. And everybody seems to share their opinion. And it just sounds really mean sometimes. And it would be really hard because let's face it, you're 12 or 13. You want to know what the gossip is. And the gossip is now just something that everybody can see no matter how mean and nasty it can get. And it's endless because I will walk around my class or in the hallway and I'll hear kids always say like, why'd you text me at three in the morning or two in the morning? Because people are sending messages back and forth all night long. And that's just to say of the local issues, not the things they're seeing on Instagram or other or TikTok or other things that are happening all over the world. And so it's just endless. And obviously, I mean, we've seen certain studies or people have just talked about how our brains are just not wired to probably take in and process all of this information on so many different levels, as you're saying, from the social to the current events to, you know, important things to non-important things. And it's amazing how all of it just kind of becomes this steady stream of something, but it's hard to really kind of weigh and evaluate what it all means, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, well, it's hard to process things on all these different levels happening at the same time. And we're talking as 40-something men who have had a fully developed brain for quite some time. Imagine being a child. Totally. I think that's what's so hard, right? And, you know, they have tried to put out some guidelines, like maybe you shouldn't have your kid get a smartphone until they're in the eighth grade, or make sure that when your kid does get a smartphone, that you're checking their phone constantly, or that, you know, you're taking their phone at night so that they are getting a good night's rest. 
And at the same time, it's really hard to not have your kid have some kind of a phone or communication device. At this day, my wife and I, we don't own a landline phone. It's weird, but like my kids kind of have no way to contact their friends other than if we do it for them. And one of the major changes I've seen in parenting is that my wife and I are now kind of the organizers of our kids' social calendar. But part of that is like, we have no way for them to kind of take control of that, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, they'll take control. It's coming. <laughs> the one thing I really love is the line here where the, the, the author says, we just got push notifications about something very bad that's been happening for a long time and will probably never end. Isn't that most of current events that are out there? Like they're just out there and they've always been there. I mean, especially something like global warming or crime or poverty and you see something and you almost like hyper-focus on it and then you just see headlines. You can just endlessly scroll and it's kind of amazing how like, because we're always connected, it's almost like you can make that issue just really dig itself into your brain and never let it go. Yeah. What occurred to me is some sort of onion headline, like poverty is ominous and repressive and ongoing and never will end. And just like, Oh, like it's just, Oh, that's, this is awful thing. And of course, like, and this happens too in the newspaper, but I guess in the newspaper, what I like is I can flip by it. I don't have to really think about it. There was a headline about things are bad for women in Afghanistan. Like, yes, I'm sure that's been the case forever. It's worse now. Like, it's just, I, I, there's no solution. And it, it just is what it is. And you have these constant reminders bubbling into your life. Again, the joke is sort of like that this is a bad thing. But I kind of was wondering, do you think if this is 1985 and let's say, you know, global warming is at the stage that it is today. And I know that people were starting to kind of sound the alarms in 1985. But in some ways, I feel like there's more attention to climate change now than there was 20 years ago. And you could say, well, that's just because the global average temperatures have increased. But do you think in some ways, because people are constantly being hit with those sorts of headlines, maybe actually more solutions and attention is being brought to the issue because we're also connected all the time? Well, absolutely. And the vivid imagery of volcanoes and earthquakes and tornadoes are horrifying and real. And it's a headline that is drawing clicks, but also drawing attention to an increasing issue, which is that the climate change is affecting lives of people and causing tragedies. We need to do something. As we said in last week's podcast, I mean, I, I'm alarmed at how quick that nations are actually moving. This is a broad agenda that's actually seeming to make progress. And therefore, maybe it's good that we uh, just have to keep staring at it every day. But at the same time, I can see where it really can make you feel down about things when you're constantly seeing that, right? Although I guess the other side of it is, and this would have been another paragraph maybe the author could have added was, I then spend an hour and a half watching cat videos or, you know, learning about Stephen Curry and his uh, latest uh, NBA record or, you know, just looking at trivial news just to make myself feel better and happy and feel like I'm doing something, right? Yeah, well, that's the other side, too, is the little joy that you get. Um, I love Google Photos notifications that send me what were we doing and taking pictures of five years ago. And that's always makes me happy. Um, there's a little schadenfreunde as that uh, Urban Meyer has been fired as the Jacksonville Jaguars coach. Oh, good. I don't like that guy, even though I've never met him. And I'm bad, glad bad things are happening to him. But it's, you know, there's there's the other side of that, too. But overall, it makes people feel sad. And we've talked about this before. And things like Instagram, like, oh, here's somebody that's better looking than you, and you're never going to look this good. 
And so it's just these messages that are subtle and repressive that I think people passively kind of get that they're feeling that way when they look at their phones, but yet they don't know what else to do. And for me, the more tired I get, the more I look at my phone. Yeah. Oh, that's true. It's, it's easy, right? It's easy just to kind of scroll. Now, in, in the essay too, the author, of course, talks about, I spend time Googling diseases that I think I might have. And I wonder, do you think there's been a rise in hypochondriacs over the last 10 years because of people just being able to be like, oh, my toe hurts. Let me see what that might be. And then all of a sudden they go down these rabbit holes. I can remember when my kids were like super young infants, you know, and they wouldn't sleep at night. Uh, my wife and I would dig down the you know Google rabbit hole of my kid won't sleep. And then you just get freaked <laughs> out over all sorts of diseases that they might have. And of course, it's the middle of the night. You have no answers. You're sleep deprived. Your kid's screaming. And so then you're like, well, maybe this explains it. Right. And I just, you know, I thought that's so true in some ways. I like that you're searching for fleeting answers as to why your kid won't sleep. I was just just overwhelmed with the fact that my kid wouldn't sleep and that it was destroying what little sanity I had to begin with. Oh, that was the hardest. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, it is true. I think a little bit of knowledge is not a great thing when it comes to diseases and that some people are looking for them all the time. <laughs> Could be worse too. Like I have a friend whose wife's an emergency room doctor, and I was like, "Well, that must be great. You can, you know, get a quick diagnosis on a ear infection or whatnot, and your wife can prescribe the drugs and stuff." He goes, "No, it's awful. She's she's diagnosing horrible diseases that the kids don't have. They're exceedingly rare, but she knows them all, and so she's pulling it out of nowhere." I was like, "Oh, well, that's not good at all." So I, I don't know if there's any solution here. I just try to stay away from that. It's usually all right. We'll hope for the best. I'd be curious. If you talk to your friend, if um, how often now do people come in with their own diagnosis of themselves based upon what they've Googled? Oh, yeah. Well, they he was explaining that part of the opioid crisis is people going to emergency rooms and asking for hardcore drugs to treat this thing that they have. But they've looked up online. What is the thing that you need to say to the emergency room doctor? So the emergency room doctor should prescribe you the hardcore opiates. And so he was saying that his wife knows that the people come in, they say the things that they know they need to say. She can't find any do tests because this is a specific thing that they don't have really good tests for. So she has to prescribe it. It just is what it is. Like people are gaming that system too, much to their detriment. Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, I guess the question I kind of had is like, again, given how our behavior has been shaped now by our phones and how much time we spend on those screens doing all sorts of activities, some productive, some not productive. Does it make you wonder like all that time that we had 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, what were we doing with it? Right. I mean, think about if, if people are spending two, three, four hours on their phones or more a day, think about all that brain capacity and time that we had a long time ago, I can't even really remember what we were doing. And I guess my thing is, do you think we were more productive or do you think we were all just watching really bad network television shows? A little of both. I, th I think back and we watched some TV, but it was the TV wasn't as good, but that's a different issue. That's about how TV and streaming works. But the, we were watching what was on, not what we exactly what we want, which is exactly what we can have right now. I think we just had more downtime, just kind of looking around, getting things done. I, I look at my screen time on my phone and I'm using about an hour a day. And most of that is going to answering emails and stuff from related to work. And so I really don't use that much time. And the time that I'm doing is kind of emails that I'm doing at home rather than at school. And so 
But I think in general, people were just doing more little putzing around the house, talking to people, maybe interacting with each other more. That's hard to quantify, but that's certainly a lost value. Maybe they were wishing they had phones. That's what we were doing 20 (laughs) years ago. Well, I don't know. Like an essay like this, of course, I think it does point out a lot of truths. And therefore, do you think when you read this, you nod your head and you're like, yeah, that's kind of true. Do you think the purpose of the essay is just to point out our behavior and we just laugh about it? Or is it to get us to change something about ourselves? And I guess that's my question about satire. Is it just supposed to be like a mirror onto our worst behaviors? Or do you think the goal here is like, yeah, maybe we are on our phones a little too much. Yeah, maybe we take our phones a little too seriously. Maybe we should get off. Do you think people interpret an essay like this, like that? I wonder if it's, I, I doubt it's going to change behavior, but I think it just points out the uh, the foibles of our behaviors. That said, this is a unifying essay. I think you could read this to anybody of any political perspective, and they'd say, yes, something awful is happening. It's been happening for a long time. They might be thinking of different things, but it is unifying, and we're all kind of in this situation. Well, all except for our friend Russ that doesn't have a cell phone, but we're all kind of there, and that we've all kind of found ourselves in the situation and perhaps we should change. I I just don't see it, but I kind of like to see it. I really try on the weekends often just put my phone somewhere and just leave it for hours. So I don't have to look at it all the time and uh, quickly get taken in some other task, which is out there. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. I'm amazed of before I leave the house, I always check, do I have my phone, right? And, you know, you get that feeling of like, uh oh, I didn't bring my phone or I forgot it. And then all of a sudden you feel like you've really kind of like left half of yourself at home in a way to to stay connected or to stay current. I'm amazed too at just like the slow creep of, oh, I'm in the line at the grocery store, right? And now I'm just going to pull out my phone and, and check two or three things, right? Or it's amazing how just quickly you pull your phone out all the time. And as the essay just kind of points out, it's amazing how all it takes is one sentence from social media or the news or anything, and it can really make you feel something, both positive or negative. I remember when I was younger, sitting around a long time waiting for rides places, like getting picked up from this or that. Yes. And you'd just be standing there at the mall or at the high school, just like, ugh, how long till I get picked up? Where are they? And you just sat there, just kind of idly bored. So I'm not sure that time is that much of a loss. Um, yeah, last night I had to pick up my son from basketball and it was like 10 minutes later than he want that I would have wanted to be there. He just sat there on his phone doing Snapchat or whatnot. I don't think it's that much lost. It was idle time. At best, he would just be sitting around pondering things, be probably pondering how hungry he is and how he wants to take a shower, but it's not that much of a loss. And there's some other times like that where, you know, you'd have three people in a car driving somewhere and you're sometimes talking, but sometimes just staring at the window and now you're on your phone, which is not a gain. It's not gaining that much utility, but it's better than just staring out the window going, ugh, we're still in Nebraska. I mean, how many times do you remember being in the car, like just miserable, like, ugh, how long do we get out of here? That's a good point. A trip to Florida was maybe a Walkman and, and some coloring pages or something like that. And now my kids can pull out a tablet and watch movies all the way down there. But you make a really interesting point about Back in the old days, I guess, there was a lot of idle boredom, right? Kids just waiting for rides or people just waiting for something to happen. And in some ways now, we don't allow ourselves to get bored, right? The moment you have a down moment, you pull your phone out and start looking at stuff. And you could say, well, now we're just super productive. We don't waste a moment of the day. But are we sure that maybe that's 
a good thing that we're getting rid of all boredom because usually, you know, people have talked about the idea that when you're bored is where you start to get creative or where you start to, you know, put two independent variables together, maybe in for unique ideas, unique thoughts. If you're bored and you are looking around, maybe you're noticing the social problems that are around you, right? Maybe you're noticing that like buildings or neighborhoods or things are, are falling apart. And all of a sudden, maybe that, that might drive you to want to do something if you were looking around, but I kind of do wonder if we've taken out all boredom in life and therefore we're all just hyper-focused on one thing, which is our own personal world, the private world, that maybe we're losing, you know, our ability to relate to, relate to each other publicly. Yeah, perhaps. Maybe you look around and you're like, oh, I should just talk to this person I've never met while I'm waiting for it to get picked up from this or that or the other thing. Maybe that's how people meet their spouses and friends. I'm sure that's the case. And there's, without that, it's the perfect solution at the end of class when you're awkwardly standing with your other students for a minute or two before the door opens, everybody gets on their phone. Well, they could have talked to each other and interacted and kind of build some sort of social skill. But I warn them not to do that. As soon as they stand up, I say, get on your phone. In the passing period, I want to see you look at your phone. I don't want to see you interacting with any other humans or building social skills. It's phone, phone, phone. And thankfully, they all comply. <laughs> well, it's funny because I have a basketball team that uh, they've got to kind of sit outside of my classroom for about a half hour sometimes before games. And all of a sudden you'll hear a bunch of like raucous and there's some like, you know, pounding of the floor and I'll get out there and, and the kids are just, you know, they're being boys and they're just kind of a little bit of horseplay. And I'll be like, guys, get your phones out, sit down and look at your screens. We cannot be this loud. And I feel terrible when I say that, but at the same time, like I need them to calm down. Well, you're actually saying it on purpose. I, it's all a, it's all a farce for me, but for you, you really mean it. Get on your phones, kids. Don't. Yeah, absolutely. That's that'll. Uh, it does is the perfect solution to being a teenager. You can always look at your phone, even if you're looking at nothing. Then people will leave you alone and think you know what you're doing. But that is the part, though, of, you know, I, I used to see it when we had students all kind of waiting for school to start downstairs. And, you know, it used to be 10 years ago, kids were mostly kind of interacting with each other, sitting at tables, just kind of, you know, waiting for killing time, basically, right? But killing time with each other. And now what I find is so many kids have their phones out, they've got earbuds in, and they're having their own private world. And hey, in some ways, it takes away the anxiety of trying to blend in socially. And I get it. It's a hard time for teens. But I do wonder if sometimes what's easy is not always best in the long run, because I, th I think, you know, at what point do you need to push yourself to go out and, uh, and connect with other people and stuff like that? Well, that's what I think. Maybe you can limit your social media a little bit so that you do have a reason to talk to other people because the phone isn't that interesting. Um, my kids don't have TikTok. They don't have Instagram. My older son does have Snapchat, but he tells me he gets to school early and he just finds somebody to talk to, just walks around with them and talks to them about stuff. And I, that's fantastic. I think it's if he had TikTok, maybe he'd sit in the corner and look at TikTok or maybe not. I don't know. But they just like to be moving around and talking to people. So um, it, it is a limit, I think, if you can get down things a little bit. I think TikTok in particular, my students describe it as you had you want to make a half hour disappear. So you get on TikTok and that half hour is gone. And so is the next hour and a half. So if you can just the limit the things that you're looking at on the phone, which is kind of what I try to do. I like how they say it as you need to make a half hour disappear as <clears throat> life is just full of drudgery. And how can we just get to the end of it all, right? 
Well, that's the great irony, but you and I are no different. We just want to get to the end of the day so we can get home from school, so we can go to bed, so we can get dinner on the table and just get to Friday. I just want to get to Friday to get to the weekend. And yet you don't want years to pass, but that's exactly what you're doing. Each time you're saying, I can't wait to just get to this thing, this weekend or this end of this day or this bedtime. And ultimately, all of a sudden years pass and you say, well, what happened? Well, all those weeks added up. So I try to appreciate the days for what they are and not be urging them for to pass by so quickly because sooner or later, my kids are going to be gone and I'm going to be home here with my wife looking at me like, Ugh, I don't even like you that much anymore. And so <laughs> I, it's hard to appreciate every moment. I think that's maybe reaching too far, but perhaps if we put down our phones a little more, we will. No, that's a good point. I mean, hey, the days can be long and Obviously, that's always the the lesson in most uh, Hallmark movies and movies and stories in general, right? Appreciate the moments, the small things. And let's face it, there's a lot of dullness in life. And it's about kind of grinding out the next hour. And the phone definitely helps make the time pass. That's for sure. Yeah. But I don't know if I really want this time to pass or not. I do agree with you, though. Shopping line at Meyer, the, the lines are increasingly long because nobody wants to work. And I get on my phone there and look at almost anything. <laughs> but what's the difference between that and grabbing the People magazine on the uh, stand and looking at that, which is what you would have done 20 years ago? That's a good point. I mean, that's a super good point, because probably half the time on people's news feed, it's Us Weekly or People magazine stories anyways. That's Celebrities a- and royalty and trash. What's the matter? What does what doesn't matter what the medium is? That is a very good point. Maybe ultimately that's what we were doing 10 years ago was, uh, you know, looking at the celebrity. They're just like us. And there's Jennifer Aniston uh, pumping gas or something like that. Elizabeth Taylor. (laughs) The other part I wanted us to kind of talk about is a couple of weeks ago, you sent me a podcast episode. The podcast is called Cautionary Tales, and it's by uh, an economist named Tim Harford, who just sort of looks at like interesting moments in life. And he did this episode about Hansel and Gretel, of course, the you know famous fairy tale brother and sister who uh, are left in the woods by their father because he can't afford to take care of them. And they end up stumbling upon this house and this evil witch locks them up in cages and then eventually is going to try to eat them. But then they end up pushing her into the oven and locking her in there and killing her. And then they come back and dad was like, oh, I'm really sorry. And they all live happily ever after. In the podcast, it talks about a real life German guy back in the 1960s who published this like national bestseller book. The book was based upon this guy saying, look, I found the original text to this fairy tale. I did a really close analysis of the reading and I have discovered the exact area in the woods where Hansel and Gretel were left by their father. And I even found the cord that their dad had used to like have a branch hit a hit a tree to make it look like he had been chopping wood. He then even goes on further in this book to talk about how like he started to follow the descriptions in the story to where he found like the foundation of this home that he believed was the witch's house. And then as he got into the house, he was digging around and inside this treasure chest was a gingerbread recipe. And all of a sudden, like, you know, as you're listening to this podcast, you're like, holy cow. And then the big payday comes when the guy talks about how he found the remains of a locked oven 
and inside that oven was a woman's remains. And apparently back in the 60s, this book was such a sensation that people just went nuts. And all of a sudden, people were using this book. They were organizing like school field trips. There were tourists coming there all to like go and like try to retrace this guy's steps as they're like, I can't believe it. The Hansel and Gretel story is actually true. There's actual proof. And yet, Don, what did we finally then learn as the podcast continued? Oh, that it's all a satire, that it's all a farce. He doesn't actually do any of these things. And he's intentionally trying to make it clear that he's just, it's all a joke, but he, but people don't realize that. And they, even some people realize one part of the story is fake, but then there's others that is just like, well, the rope wouldn't be hanging super high from the tree. It'd be hanging lower, but otherwise great research. And so nobody really gets that it's all satire. Right. You even had like, I think like some historical societies were like, oh my God, the the research and the methods this guy used were so outstanding. And what a tremendous job of history that had been done. And, you know, yet some people like quickly picked up on the fact that like the gingerbread recipe that was allegedly locked in a chest was like some like common gingerbread recipe from like the 1950s that like wasn't really that creative or anything. No, it was like the most popular gingerbread recipe ever. And he's like, at that point, I was like, no, they didn't find the little iron lockbox with the recipe in it. Like, no, this can't be true. But yet people did believe it. And that's the danger of this is that people will believe it. And the more crazy, the more they're going to believe it. Well, what was crazy was they talked about how eventually it is released and revealed that that this was a farce. And this is after lots of people had spent money being tourists or walking around the woods. Again, they had field trips from schools that were all going here. And people were super bitter in the country. In fact, the guy got sued. There were multiple lawsuits saying that, that you know, this guy had, had duped everybody, that he had been a liar. And like for a while, it looked like this guy might lose the lawsuits until finally someone said like, it's not illegal to like just publish like satire, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. essentially that's what they were doing. And it's just crazy that it went that far, that people just couldn't laugh at themselves, which makes me wonder, do you think like in, in, in the case of this podcast or even in the case of the New Yorker essay about phones, how many people get angry, I guess, when they read this because they're being made fun of in a way? That's a good question. I'm not sure how many, but some percent of people... Some percent of people don't really get it. And it's challenging for people to really think about and reassess. What if you did believe it? What if you didn't? Then you realize, oh, I'm an idiot. They're just making fun of me for not getting it. Maybe that's what it stems from. Yeah. No, maybe it is just sort of nobody likes to be made fun of. And in a way, when you realize how much you've been duped, it's, you know, it's, it's it takes you back a little bit. You got to kind of like process just sort of like, oh, I guess I just got made fun of big time. But I don't know. I, I just think it's interesting that so many people were so angry about that kind of satire. And it just kind of made me wonder about like today, you know, in this sort of world that we have where we now have fake news, it seems like everywhere we have different realities that people want to live in and they want to believe certain narratives, even if there's so much evidence to the contrary. Do you think like satire has lost its ability to be effective then if everybody just wants to believe whatever they want to believe? Yeah, and people are more willing to be upset and share their upsetness. Maybe it's the fact that people can easily share how they find this not funny and how it is wrong to make these things, these statements and be upset about it. Um, I mean, 
perhaps that's what it is, is that there's a greater voice to the, to the masses. But at the same time, yeah, it, it's, it's satire. People should understand. It's all a joke. And I'm not sure why they get so upset about it. I just think about how we communicate now as a nation, especially politically between the two political parties and both sides belittle and make fun of each other so much over everything that in some ways it's almost like each side is just developing its own satire against the other. And once again, I think just at some point, like, don't you need to have a common set of facts or a common experience that kind of can cut through all of that? It just, uh, that would be the part that I just, I guess I wonder if it's maybe a little bit concerning. That's true. That's why maybe the common experience is one that not a lot of people have. But yes, everybody's set be using satire on each other's sides. I mean, maybe you're within your own little niche, your own set perspective, you're willing to take it. But within others, you're like, oh, well, now you think you're so much better than me make fun, making fun of me. It's all very odd. Well, you have that radio broadcast back in the 50s, the War of the Worlds, right, where some people thought the the world was ending or the aliens were coming. I don't know if that was satire, because I think at the beginning of the program, they told everybody, like, this is just a story. But that seemed to get a lot of people upset when it was happening. They didn't know. I was also just thinking of, like, isn't all of pro wrestling just satire? (laughs) And yet some people believe it's real. A lot of people believe it's real, and yet it's storylines and something meant to engross the audience and get them very excited about what's happening. And that's kind of what all of this is, isn't it? It's the, the whether you're talking about Pizzagate or whether you're talking about QAnon or whatever it is, it's people getting fired up for something. And even if it's not real, it's still motivating the masses. And I'm not sure this one, the Hansel and Gretel one, is trying to provoke rage for some certain political perspective, but it's just trying to get people to think and do something a little funny. Well, no, and at the end of the day, isn't that what it's all about, right? Think for yourself and and take, before you just react, you know, take a moment here and get a sense here. Are we sure this is true? Are we sure this is right? But it makes me think back to like, I've seen the highlights of when Andy Kaufman and Jerry Lawler uh, were having their like, you know, kind of quote unquote feud, both in the wrestling ring and then on like the Letterman show. And everybody couldn't quite figure out if it was real or not. And Yet at the same time, like it made people feel something, which I think was kind of the genius of Andy Kaufman. Yeah, but and that's the I don't really know how to respond to this. That's the great and kind of interesting moment in the satire. And it happened to me yesterday in class because kids started arguing about vaccines. Are they real? Do they really work? And uh, and I they it was getting fairly contentious. And I just said as loud as I could, birds aren't real. They're drones by the created by the government to spy on us. They charge on power lines. And half the class started laughing and the other half just couldn't figure out what I was saying. Is it real? Is he not? What, what's happening? Yeah. No, it's an interesting like misdirection. And yet there's a, there's a level of humor there and sophistication that um, only some people will get. And I guess you could argue that the best satire is one that sits really high up there and that not everybody's going to get it. Well, isn't that the best joke that only a few people get? That's my favorite joke. Yeah. Well, you know, your favorite 18th century essayist, Jonathan Swift, he had that famous uh, one called A Modest Proposal, where he was proposing that people basically like eat babies and stuff like that so that the <laughs> rich in Ireland wouldn't have to look at all the poor children and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm sure in that day, people went nuts over that thing. And at the same time, like, clearly there's satire there, but I think some people were offended. 
Oh, I'm sure they're offended. <laughs> I don't know if they came with the pitchforks and the torches, but it certainly uh, probably made people think a little differently about the problem, which I guess is the ultimate goal of satire. I'm just not sure they're always successful. You know, that's a really good point. And isn't that maybe what the goal is of it is to make people think differently about the problem instead of just saying, yeah, that's a problem. Again, to poke and prod people to look at it just a little bit differently. And maybe that will ultimately, you know, bring out solutions that we don't even think about and stuff like that. It'd be fantastic if it did. Well, I just have kind of one more question then for you. I guess my question is like, do you think we need more or less satire today? Do you think we are, we have too much and therefore everything's just kind of a big joke nowadays? Or do you think we don't have enough and we're not uh, looking at issues in, in, in enough ways? I think we need more. I think we need to second guess things and really think about it. I love all these sites like The Onion that, um, that post things that are really a farce, but then yet people aren't quite sure. We need to think more about our uh, the news sources and what we're reading and hearing. And that is better, all for the better. No, I, I think you're probably right. I guess I like it that this was a, a written piece of satire and it's it's very accessible to everybody. I highly recommend uh, clicking on the link here, of course, put it in our show notes. Also just shout out to the author. His name is Eli Grober and uh, definitely a very entertaining piece that he, written, he wrote. And um, I'm glad we got a chance to kind of cover it today. Oh yeah, it's, it's brilliant writing. Uh, and of course, I'll also post a link to the podcast, the Hansel and Greta one. It's also very interesting. He also links it and connects it with the movie Fargo and kind of once again, how people maybe took something way too seriously about that movie and kind of a, a sad death that happens around it. Uh, but it's also a really good episode. So recommend that too. Oh, yeah. It's very interesting the way people took take things as fact that aren't fact and take things that are fact as myth. It's, it's such a topsy-turvy situation. Definitely it is. Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Absolutely. Have a good one, Zach. Take care. Bye-bye.